I'm John Edwards, the lute player and artistic director of the Musicians in Ordinary. You are hearing an excerpt from the first of the Lord's Dances, which was performed at the English court in 1613 for the wedding celebrations of Elizabeth Stuart to Frederick, Count Palatine. At the end of this podcast, you can listen to this dance complete, along with a number of other court mask dances of the sort that might have crossed over into the public theatre. And this is part of a series of podcasts, supported by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, the SPEM in Allium Fund of the Toronto Foundation, and York University, on that interaction between the court mask and the public theatre companies in the time of Shakespeare, Ben Jonson, and their contemporaries. Stephen Orgel, Jackson Eli Reynolds Professor in the Humanities Emeritus at Stanford University, has been the leading authority on court masks since the publication of his The Johnsonian Mask in 1965, and has edited Shakespeare for Oxford University Press, Marlowe for Penguin, and has published many other books on the theatre, imagery, and self-portrayal in the early modern period. I was lucky enough to sit down with Stephen, and first we chatted about the court mask in general, its performers, its expressions of power, in a period where absolute monarchies were developing throughout Europe. Stephen, in one of the episodes uh, for Margaret Board's Loot Book, Deanne and I uh, discussed the mask because there's a few mask tunes in Margaret Board's Loot Book that I played. Uh, but why don't you tell us, first of all, just generally what is a mask? Okay, well, it's a very special kind of entertainment. It included two, two different kinds of performers. Uh, the speaking and singing roles were taken by professionals, but most of the action wasn't speaking and singing, it was dancing. And the dancers were aristocratic ladies and gentlemen, splendidly costumed and masked, and they never took speaking parts. As a form, it's, it's basically celebratory. That is, it's about the people that it entertains. And at its climax, the dramatic fiction opens out to include its audience. And in masks at the royal court, the usual way of doing this was to conclude the work with a grand dance in which the maskers descend from the stage and take partners from among, among the spectators so that what the audience begins by watching, they end by becoming. As an entertainment, it was really more of a game than a show, <laughs> uh, an, an expression of aristocratic identity and privilege, and the masks provide some kind of freedom from the constraints of, of, of office and place. And, but you, you know. do you think everybody would know for sure who was who? I think that's the point. It's, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a small and select audience and everybody knows who everybody is. Yeah. It, it, so it's really different from, from drama. It's really different from going to theater. And what survives of masks, the, the problem in, in studying them is that what survives gives us very little sense of what made the, these entertainments so special. I mean, we've got, we have the texts of the dialogue and the song lyrics, and we have some music, not a whole lot. Um, the texts are generally 15, 20, up to 30 pages long. And if we study the mask, 
that's what we have to study. But most of the mask wasn't, wasn't that. It wasn't its text. For the most part, it was spectacle, music, and dance. I mean, the, the dramatic and poetic element might take half an hour, but these entertainments could occupy most of the night. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, that's true of the music, as you say. Uh, Lord Hay's mask is printed in sort of a memorial edition, and it's got descriptions of exactly what instruments. And in the back, it's got the songs with a part for... It's got the singing part and then a, a lute part. And uh, there's an alto part that you could play on the flute. And there's a bass part that you would play on a bass viol. But we know from the description in the text that all kinds of instruments were playing in those uh, dance songs. Yeah. And we don't have the other parts, like the bandora part and things like that. And and presumably the... the musicians would improvise mm-hmm. uh, da- dance music. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, uh, it, the songs last, what, a couple of minutes? And, yeah, yeah. And, uh, but, I mean, you had 20 minutes of dance. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, so, historically, uh, masks have been popular uh, at the English court for, for a couple of centuries. Henry VIII particularly liked the way they allowed him to ignore court protocol. If a, if a perfectly horrible-looking beggar came in and asked you to dance, you, 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 you <laughs> accepted because it almost certainly was the king. Uh, but the form really came into its own in the 17th century, the early 17th century, under James I and his Queen Anne of Denmark and later uh, King Charles. Uh, with the work of Ben Johnson and the architect and stage designer Inigo Jones. Before their time, it was usual for the whole hall to be treated as the theater, and the scenery was distributed around the room, and the action took place in the center. Uh, Jones made a significant change in the topography of the performance. Uh, He turned one end of the hall into a stage, and he used perspective scenery. He was the first person to introduce perspective scenery into England, and that left the floor free for the dancing. He also placed the king at the optical center of the, of the hall, the only place from which the scenic perspective was perfect, and this made the masking hall into a reflection of the court hierarchy. The king has the perfect seat, and the closer you seat, sit to the king, the better your, your perspective place works. was. Yeah. Famously in uh, The Tempest, there's a mask, and there are some other plays by Shakespeare that have masks sort of inserted to them. How would he know what was going on in masks? Because he wasn't, you know, the French ambassador or great courtier that would be invited to these events. Right. Uh, uh, he, and he didn't write masks for the court, but he did know all about them because his company, his theatrical company, The King's Men, those were the professionals who took the speaking roles. And the, the most full-fledged theatrical mask is the mask in The Tempest, and that gives you a good sense of what interested him about the form and of where he might have taken it. I mean, the first thing to say is that the mask in The Tempest wouldn't have looked like a court mask because the public theaters didn't have scenery, um, and on, they had only mo- the most basic scenic machinery. Uh, they had a trapdoor in the stage for appearances and disappearances, a trapdoor in the ceiling for descents of gods and goddesses. Thunder was a cannonball rolled around uh, ab- above the stage. There were fireworks for lightning, but mm. there were none of the miraculous transformations and scenic wonders that 
that Inigo Jones brought to masks at court. The costumes, on the other hand, could be very splendid in Shakespeare's theater, and the figures in Prospero's mask would certainly have looked like the figures in the masks at court. And many of Inigo Jones's costume designs survive. Um, they're not exactly what we would call costumes. They're courtly dress, very much heightened and elaborated. The women's dresses, particularly, um, are a little different. Uh, women's dresses normally would come to the floor, but their ankle length, because they're dancers, women normally wouldn't have shown their ankles. But these are aristocratic participants, and they're dressed so that they remain recognizable as court lords and ladies. The splendor of the several masks performed in the week of Elizabeth and Frederick's wedding, then, was used by King James as a projection of power to the assembled courtiers and ambassadors. Shakespeare's Tempest, also performed at court that week, having come up, Stephen read for us some of his thoughts about Prospero's performance of power as he triumphs over his aristocratic enemies and the gods of love. Prospero becomes the magical producer of a marriage mask the comic rabble, which is en route to murder him, having slipped his mind briefly. Court masks are expressions not only of idealization and ideology, but of royal power and authority as well. They celebrated the monarchy, but the monarch also spoke through them. And it's entirely appropriate that at his moment of triumph, Prospero, the monarch at the center of the tempest, produces a mask. This play is Shakespeare's most complete essay on the power and art of the royal imagination. Prospero's mask really is his moment of triumph. It celebrates the betrothal of his daughter Miranda to Ferdinand, the son of his great enemy, Alonso, the king of Naples. Alonso, you remember, was the monarch who, in league with Prospero's younger brother Antonio, had deposed him and sent Prospero and Miranda into exile. The marriage mask, therefore, represents reconciliation, certainly, but it also represents revenge and vindication. The heir of Naples now belongs to Prospero. And Ferdinand, judging from his behavior in the play, promises to be an extremely compliant and appreciative son-in-law. So he produces a pastoral mask for the lovers, presided over by Ceres and Juno. Ceres is the goddess of agriculture. She directs the play back to civilized nature, away from the island world of Caliban, Prospero's slave, who provides his master with food by hunting and fishing and gathering nuts and fruit. The mask is full of agriculture, and that represents a step up on the anthropological scale. <laughs> Juno, the queen of heaven, the embodiment of female power, takes on her most benign aspect as patron of marriage, pointing the way to a resolution of political conflicts, to the uniting of ancient enemies in nuptial harmony. All the destructive elements of love have been banished, Venus and Cupid, the lustful goddess and the wanton god, confounded by the chaste vows of Ferdinand and Miranda, have disappeared, mm -hmm. taken themselves off somewhere else. The presenter of the vision is Iris, the rainbow, the messenger of heaven in the Old Testament, the pledge of God's, God's providence after the universal flood. 
the play, The Tempest is temporally the most tightly organized of Shakespeare's plays. It's the only one in which the action represented takes exactly as long as the performance of it. And Prospero is in control of the action throughout. But Prospero's mask has a different time scheme. It covers several months. It begins in April. The play says spongy April. That is, it's constantly <laughs> raining. It then moves through, through spring and high summer and arrives after only 40 lines at the beginning of autumn with the entry of reapers. After this, Ceres promises Ferdinand and Miranda not the coming of winter, but a new spring almost at once. The masks world banishes winter. Its natural cycle doesn't include death. Uh, this is the point at which the magi magician interrupts his creation to recall himself and the play to the realities of the world of action. Prospero says, I had forgot that foul conspiracy of the beast Caliban. Caliban and his confederates Stefano and Trinculo are at this very moment coming to kill Prospero. The fantasy of the mask has made Prospero forgetful of the drama. Prospero has a double sense of his world, both as an insubstantial pageant and as an action unfolding moment by moment, a series of crises. And at this instant, Prospero realizes that he has to reclaim his drama. Prospero's mask is almost always omitted from modern productions, and that's probably reasonable, because for modern audiences, it's just an interlude, and we can't see its point. It is genuinely difficult to give a sense of why it matters, to present it as an assertion of Prospero's power rather than as a delaying tactic of Shakespeare's. But it's the most palpable example we're shown of Prospero's art. And before the 20th century, it was often the high point in the evening's entertainment. I mean, 19th century productions made huge spectacles out of it. Masks, in fact, are probably a better index to the complexities of Renaissance theater than drama is. Understanding the mask requires us to take seriously not just what we have to pay attention to in plays, plot, character, style, but also the ubiquitous and often arcane forms of Renaissance philosophy and symbolism, and also the demands of patronage, the nature of artistic collaboration, most important, the presence of an active and specific audience. Dealing with these celebratory works only through their texts, moreover, constantly reminds us of how much this quintessentially Renaissance form is lost to us. Spectacle, music, choreography, complex symbolism, most of all the participation of identifiable patrons and performers who also constitute what's being celebrated. In a sense, this is what Renaissance art was all about. It was more of a game than a show. It was an expression of aristocratic identity and privilege, with the masks providing a degree of freedom, even if only notional, from the constraints of place, office, and self. We inevitably approach these works through their texts, but the texts really don't tell us very much. They mostly tell us about intentions and purposes and meanings. They're especially unforthcoming in cases where things don't work, which culturally are the most interesting cases. Uh, Thomas Campion wrote two masks, and he's almost alone in acknowledging failure. 
in this case, the failure of the scenic machinery in a mask called Lord Hay's mask. Somebody didn't hook things up properly. Um, that was performed in 1607. But Campion thus acknowledges how little control the text has over the final product, over the performance. Our evidence in cases like this is almost invariably the evidence of report and gossip, which is characteristically more interested in performance than intention, performers and scripts, audiences than performers. And I've got a couple of, exa of examples of times when things went wrong. Um, the, the texts of masks describe or prescribe a court that moves in perfect order, like the movement of the spheres. And the dancing there is clearly the central element. But to think of it that way is to remain completely within the terms provided by the poet's texts. If we look beyond the texts, we get a quite different picture. From Inigo Jones's costume designs and his annotations to them, we learn how much freedom the royal and noble participants in this, these supreme assertions of aristocratic community and independence had in presenting themselves. Jones made the costume designs, but Jones was an employee. He was working to order. He was paid not to dictate, but to realize the intentions of his employers. The costumes were the property of the ladies and gentlemen maskers, made for them by their own dressmakers and tailors. They were based on Jones's costume designs, however. Maskers felt free to adapt the final outfits to their own tastes. There's a striking piece of evidence in the material uh, relating to Ben Jonson's mask, Hymenii, a mask celebrating an aristocratic wedding in 1606, Jonson describes the ladies' garments in great detail. The maskers were to be identically dressed in a very elaborate costume with a richly embroidered double skirt. Now it happens that three ladies who danced in the mask had their portraits painted in the costume. Two of them accord closely with Johnson's description. The third lady, however, who was Johnson's patron, Lucy Countess of Bedford, doesn't wear a double skirt. She wears a single skirt. That was how this noble masker preferred to appear. Here's another example of aristocratic independence. At the performance of Johnson's mask, Love Restored, on Twelfth Night, 1612, when the masker lords descended from the stage to invite the ladies to dance, the ladies refused, so the lords had no partners and had to dance with each other. The only way we know about what must have been a real fiasco is from a single letter of a fascinated spectator. Johnson's text, understandably, doesn't say anything about it. This is a case where gossip is of the evidence. At this remove, it's very difficult to know what the problem was. It's been suggested, plausibly, that the lords, most of whom were Scots, were seen by the ladies as upstarts and insufficiently aristocratic. And if this is correct, the incident gives us a good insight into the limits of protocol and the extent of courtly privilege and independence at these events. But this can't be the whole story. What happens when the audience refuses to play its part? The work was jointly sponsored by the King and the Prince of Wales. The Scottish maskers were members of their households, so the ladies were offending not just the de classe lords, but their, their royal patrons as well. 
You can imagine circumstances in which this behavior would have been considered deeply disruptive, uh, even perhaps treasonable, like <laughs> Cordelia's behavior at the beginning of King Lear. But the affair went no further. Its implications seem more private than public. And yet the whole point of the mask, the whole point of any mask, was precisely that public assertion of aristocratic solidarity. Everybody joins in the game, celebrating the glories of the crown and court. But even the gossips seem to be silent about what happens when they don't. Why is that? Is that because nothing happens? Or is the gap simply in our evidence? Here's a somewhat different kind of example. Ben Jonson's mask, Pleasure Reconciled to Virtue, performed in 1618. Uh, from the text and designs, this looks to us like one of Inigo Jones's most ingenious scenic inventions. It starts with a group of revelers in an ivy grove. They disappear, the grove disappears, and that reveals a consort of musicians at the foot of a mountain with the goddesses of pleasure and virtue at its summit. The mountain opens and Mercury descends and sings, and the work includes some of Johnson's best mask poetry. Both poetry and stagecraft, however, were declared unimpressive by those contemporary spectators whose reactions have survived, and neither poetry nor stagecraft, in fact, was central to the experience of the original audience. What remains to us of the mask, which is the text, and three drawings and no music, represents only the smallest part of the evening's entertainment. It was the dances that mattered most, especially to King James, who didn't dance but enjoyed watching the revels. On this occasion, the handsome young Duke of Buckingham, King James's current favorite, was the star. When the dancing was about to end, the king broke out in a rage, shouting, Devil take you all, dance! upon which Buckingham leapt up and gave an impromptu performance of astonishing virtuosity and thereby restored the king's good humor. I, I, it's a fascinating little vignette. Mm -hmm. uh, dancing of one kind or another occupied most of the time a court mask took to perform, and the choreography and music were quite as carefully planned as the poetry, costumes, and stagecraft. The maskers themselves rehearsed their choreographed dances for weeks, and in, in the instance I've just described, dance isn't simply a way of pleasing the king, it's more significantly a way of managing him, and for Buckingham, in his rise to favor and power, his skill at this courtly accomplishment constituted a potent political talent. So the most compelling and effective element of these entertainments is lost to us. Dance, in one sense, is always subversive in court masks because the text belonged to the monarch. In courtly forms, as in the country as a whole, royal authority expresses itself through control of the word. But dancing is both nonverbal and an aristocratic prerogative. It's one of the defining features of the social elite that surrounds the monarch, and it can only partly and intermittently be contained by the royal will. In this context, the court lady's refusal to dance and Buckingham's impromptu performance aren't flukes. They're of the essence. They're assertions of aristocratic independence in the very presence of sovereign authority. Then I described to Stephen the particular pieces we had chosen to play and why. 
and we chatted about performance practice in the masking hall and the indoor theatre in the 1610s and 20s. Um, let me tell you and our listeners what pieces of music and where they're from and things like this and maybe you can I might have a question or two for you as I say them I should uh, what we'll be using is our uh, five-part violin band the most common court dance band in the privy chamber was um, typically uh, five members of the violin family violin three violas and a bass violin which is like a big cello. The word, the violon cello, uh, violone means uh, big viola, and violon cello means little big viola, so it's one of the most silly names for an instrument <laughs> you could imagine. Uh, but before the late Baroque, when cello players by then needed to play up high and fast, the bass member of the violin family was bigger and uh, tuned a whole tone lay, uh, lower in France and uh, England. Uh, right up until 1700, they're using bass violins in Lully's operas and things like this. So this was the most common dance band, and it was used in the mask. The, the groups of instruments are used uh, symbolically. So the violins represent harmony and uh, the state coming together in... Um, the Elizabethan play Gorboduc, there's these little dumb shows, each accompanied by different groups of instruments that are used in the same way. The violins rem- represent the peace of the state, fifes represent the military, uh, there's recorders, uh, the, the Latin word is tibia, so they represent for the funeral scene, there's, there's that. So they used in, they're deployed in the same way, in, particularly in Lord Hay's mask, which is a really good description of, of the instruments that are used. In masks, in Lord Hay's masks, it would appear that the violin band has all of the musicians are on call, as you'd imagine, for a big gig like that. So both sets of violin the band are there together is probably 12. So in court masks, there'd probably be two, maybe three on a part. In some court masks, there should, certainly would be. And this is the ensemble that after the King's Men take over Blackfriars, the five-part string ensemble becomes the more common uh, ensemble that you see in there. Before that, before 1610, the boys, and when the companies are on tour, they're using an uh, ensemble called they would call it just the consort. We typically call it the broken consort now with uh, wire-strung bandoras and things. But after 1610, there's uh, more evidence in the plays that it's this string band. Indeed, but no, no wind instruments, John? They'd have wind instruments for special effects. <coughs> there's an example. Uh, there's one play where uh, hell is represented under the stage by uh, these wind players. John Adson, who publishes a book in 1621 called Courtly Masking Airs, mm-hmm. uh, was definitely, he has a walk-on part in one play in, uh, for, in the Blackfriars Theatre. He was a member of the town Waits, the London Waits, so those guys were multi-instrumentalists. This scene where there's winds under the stage for an infernal scene, they, they would have to run down from the musicians' gallery play their little bit under the stage and then run back up. It would be very difficult to pull off, I think. I uh, hope been, nobody broke their ankle on the <laughs> stairs anyway. Um, so John, this John Adson's guy is interesting in a lot of ways. He's one of the sources, as you say, the, um, we don't have a lot of 
information about what the instruments or what happened or the dancing. Um, the biggest source of the music, it's British Library Additional 10444, and it's just the treble book, presumably the violins, and the bass book, which sounds like it's incomplete, but in some ways it's quite complete because Lully, we know that Lully, a bit later in uh, France, he would write the treble, the violin, top violin part, and the bass part that tells you the harmony. He'd hand that to a assistant mm -hmm. to fill in the viola part. I see. <clears throat> and then he took to also had a copy made, and then he'd go and start doing the choreography with just the bass and the treble, and maybe a lute or a, a harpsichord filling in the harmony. So he could. It was really effective. Uh, efficient way of getting things done and the, so the viola parts are all written by a an assistant the the mask and the these earlier ballets and things they're more like a um, like a movie's made today very collaborative and that's true of plays as well uh, William Brada is an English man uh, it was very trendy if you were in North Germany to have an English dance band master, violin band master, Thomas Simpson goes off to the continent, and uh, William Brada, or possibly Brady, and Brada it might be his Germanified uh, ver version of his name. He worked in uh, Copenhagen, where John Dowland worked, Halle, Hamburg, and Berlin. In fact, the Wikipedia page lists him as one of the... Um, successors to the uh, Berlin Staatsopera along with Herbert von Karajan and uh, oh my goodness <laughs> I think I, I think that's a bit of a far reach for uh, by Wikipedia in this case but um, uh, William Brada is he publishes in 1617 many of these uh, the of mask dances that we know are mask dances from this two-part versions he publishes them in all five so we're using those for the violas in some uh, Chris Verrett, who's leading our violin band, is, as we speak, writing viola parts for them, uh, for the ones that we just have in two parts. And uh, as I say, John Adson publishes in uh, Corley Masking Airs. They're particularly from the Squire's Mask, uh, from the marriage of the Earl of uh, Somerset towards uh, the end of the year that The Tempest is performed at court and the wedding celebration of Princess to Elizabeth to Frederick Count Palatine. Indeed, we're going to play... I wanted to make sure we heard some of the dance music that the aristocrats would be dancing. And so we've got some music from the Lord's Mask uh, arranged by William Brada. So we'll hear that. So that would have been performed in, a, in one of these masks by Campion. Uh, then we will play a, a piece from the Earl of Somerset's uh, wedding mask, uh, which was done towards the end of the same year. The piece is called The Tempest. It's from another... Uh, but that was a really scandalous marriage. Well, Somerset that's what marriage. I wanted to ask you about. Uh, so James I's first favourite in England, it's uh, Robert Carr is his name, yeah. who becomes the Earl of Somerset. Now... He's James's favorite lover. He also has a lover, um, Thomas Sir Thomas Overbury. But then Robert Carr, to the Earl of Somerset, gets married to a woman who is 
mar- who is already married to the third Earl of Essex and they have to get a divorce and she accuses of him impotence and then he says, yeah, I'm impotent, but she's a witch. And then Thomas Overbury gets married, get murdered, I should say, because um, he keeps disrespecting um, well, the, count, the Countess of Essex arranges his murder. I mean, yeah, just, this, just, just, just. <laughs> it, it's not it, this. Now, nobody in the room could think that the well-ordered end of the mask where all the aristocrats, nobody could have really believed that. And I was wondering if there was a, in the mask, is there a sense of like, they're admonishing people, this is how perfect love should be. Or is there uh, is there a, is is it being held up as an example? I I mean, the, these things are written to order. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I mean, you the king is calling the shots, or the or the earl of or the earl of Somerset is calling the shots, and uh, it doesn't it doesn't it's not subver- subversive. Um, but the thing is, everybody at court knows what's going on. Everybody at court knows that that this divorce of the Countess of Essex from the Earl of Essex was rigged. Um, everybody knows that the charge that the, that the Countess of Essex is a witch and has made him mm-hmm. impotent is nonsense. So it, it, it almost, I mean, it, it doesn't matter what, what the mask mm-hmm. says. Uh, the, the mask presents one version of events and Everybody else has their pretends, own. Word. Pretends yeah, to believe yeah, it, yeah. or must believe it, because it well, of the, the power for, for the purposes of mm-hmm. the <laughs> of the proper functioning of society. You believe it. So, from the Earl of uh, Earl of Somerset's rather uh, curious wedding mask, or unrealistic ma- wedding mask, we play a movement called the Tempest. Uh, which is, you might think of it in Lily Operas again, there's these movements with fast moving strings and swooping parts. So this is an, the, perhaps the earliest version of one of, one of those things. Um, and then we play uh, the Haymaker's Dance, which is from this two-part uh, additional 10444. So the inner parts of that one are by Chris Ferret. The haymakers, I don't know much about early 17th century agriculture, but I imagine the haymakers and the reapers are in the same union. Yeah, sure. So the reapers, in, uh, the, in, reapers the in, in the Tempest might have been dancing to a vigorous dance like this haymakers dance. And then we play the nymphs dance, which is from the inner temple, uh, Mask of the Inner Temple. Again, it's one of these um, masks that were created for the wedding of Princess Elizabeth and Frederick, and it's uh, got all these time changes. Nymphs are not as scary as the witches we'll hear about in the next episode. You can't count on them to stay in the same time signature for very long. That's what we've found. (laughs) So here's the first, second, and third of the Lords from Lord's Mask of 1613. John Caprario is the original composer, and these versions are from William Brada's printed collection, of 1617, so the inner parts are probably by him. This music was likely danced at court by the aristocratic maskers rather than the professional anti-mask dancers who might later recreate their choreography for the public theatre. 
Suites of dance music, though, are known to have been played at the indoor theatres between acts of plays while the wicks of the candles were being trimmed. After the Lord's dances, you'll hear us play The Tempest from The Squire's Mask, the title of which made us unable to resist playing with a discussion of Shakespeare's play of the same name, and the vigorous Haymaker's Dance from An Unknown Mask, though the text of the play tells us that the reapers, properly habited, join with the nymphs in a graceful dance. Both of these pieces survive only in versions for treble and bass, and the inner parts have been composed by our own Christopher Verrett, after Brada's examples. And finally, the Nymph's Dance, from the Mask of the Inner Temple in Gray's Inn, also performed at Elizabeth and Frederick's wedding celebrations, and also by Caprario, arranged by Brada. In some masks, nymphs are known to have been danced by aristocratic girls, the little ladies of the court, who would certainly not have been on the stage of the Blackfriars Theatre. Professor Deanne Williams and I will talk about girl performers in masks in an upcoming episode. The musicians in Ordinary Renaissance String Band is Matt Antall, Brandon Choi, and Sheila Smythe violas, Laura Jones bass violin, me, John Edwards on the lute, all led by Christopher Verrett, violin. <laughs>